0: Well, would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. We're going to be, for the next several months and maybe longer, be looking at the book of Hebrews. And so uh, this morning I hope uh, to introduce the book, that we would walk away seeing the bigger picture of the book in its entirety and have a, an understanding of it, I've avoided preaching in Hebrews for some time because of the difficulty that comes with this book, particularly what is known as the warning passages, and it's it's led many uh, to question well whether one could lose their salvation, and we're going to look at those warning passages this morning and see that in many ways they're unnerving to read as a Christian. And I believe that God's Word puts them there as warning passages that do make us feel uncomfortable uh, for that very reason. And as we do read these passages, we want to just be crystal clear uh, of our salvation, what Jesus says In John chapter 10, verse 29, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. And so while we do see these warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews, several of them, six of them come with it, we know that it cannot be speaking of us losing our salvation. Another reason that I have avoided the book of Hebrews is because of how complex it is. And many of the arguments that are put forth here are very difficult. You have um, an exposition throughout the book of the Trinity. In fact, you see, beginning in verse or in chapter one, we see this Trinitarian formula that takes place where we see God the Father speaking. Then when you get to chapter two, you see Jesus speaking, and you get to chapter three, you see the Holy Spirit is speaking. And so we deal with several different complex issues. So at times, as we go through this book, we will be doctrinally in in the deep end of the pool, so to speak. We also see throughout this book the, the nature of the person of Christ. We see that he is fully, he is truly God, and then he is also yet truly man. Another aspect that makes this book so Uh, Tricky to deal with is because it really teaches us the covenantal structure of Scripture itself. And it does that through expositing and explaining the Old Testament. And so this book of Hebrews, and more so than really any other um, book, except for maybe Revelation, is rich, full of the Old Testament. Now, as we look at Hebrews, it's classified as an epistle. That is a letter, oftentimes is one of the what's called the Catholic epistles. But that's probably not the best way to look at the book of Hebrews. We should rather look at it as a sermon that was preached and recorded by someone. In fact, when you get to chapter 13, verse 22, that's what we see. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. That is, bear with this sermon. And so, the book of Hebrews also informs us uh, how a structure of a of a sermon ought to be. And as we work through and walk through this book this morning in, in its entirety, it is my hope that we will see in the overall structure. Not only the warning, the serious warning, but we see how that warning also comes with great hope. And that's why I've chosen chapter 10, verse 39, to introduce the book of Hebrews. I want you to hear what verse 39 says But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What is this passage saying? We that are of faith, we that are in Christ, we that have been called by the Father to be in the Son, regenerated by the Spirit, we do not shrink back, we do not apostatize, and we are not destroyed, but rather through faith we preserve and are persevere in the faith. Now he says in quoting Habakkuk in verse 38 these words But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those that shrink back. We are not those that fall away. We persevere. And so we see so clearly that perseverance and faith go hand in hand. And why is it that they go hand in hand? Perseverance and faith. Well, very clearly, the Apostle Paul tells us why. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We don't fall back. We don't shrink back. We we don't fall away. We don't walk away. Because God started a work in us. And if God started a work in us, it is God who brings that work to completion. It is God that brings that work to perfection because if you are in Christ, your salvation is a work of God in your life. As we come to this book, one of the most hotly debated things about the book of Hebrews is who wrote the book? For the early church, they almost... All said it was the Apostle Paul. In fact, when you look in older Bibles, it will say, it will have Paul in the title of it. Most scholars don't, don't really think that it was Paul. Today, they don't. many don't. Many think it was Barnabas, some think it was Apollos. And one of the most common theories that I see over and over again is that this was actually a sermon of the Apostle Paul that Luke recorded. And that's what many people hold, but, but we don't know because when you look at it, it it's, it's so unique from Paul's letters or different from Paul's letters because Paul begins his letters by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the saints in wherever he's at. It doesn't start like that. Um, but the, the, the idea of Paul's authorship um, is traditionally what people have held. You see that there's a reference to Timothy. In chapter 13, verse 23, and Timothy being released from prison, so there's that connection there. But what we do know is that we are given an idea, and this is why many say it couldn't have been Paul who wrote it, because in verse 3 of chapter 2, we read these words. It was declared at first by the Lord. That is the salvation. It was attested to us by those who heard. And so this is referring to the person that has written this or who preached this. He heard the gospel message from the apostles. Now, what do we know about Paul? Paul always considered himself an apostle. Apostle. He considered himself the least of the apostles, but he did consider himself an apostle. And so one thing that is super important is that as we look at the book of Hebrews, and we look at the teaching that emerges from it, and uh, how the author deals with the Old Testament structure, it tells us and teaches us how did the apostles read the Old Testament. That's important to know, that the book of Hebrews is apostolic in the sense that it's this, we're reading the teaching of the apostles that, that someone heard and then went and proclaimed. So what would it have been like to have heard an apostolic sermon in the first century? Well, go read the book of Hebrews, because that's what you're reading, you're basically reading the sermon of an apostle and this is so crucial because we see in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 that the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone so what we talk about is our faith is an apostolic faith because the apostles when they came to know who Christ was. They saw who Christ was from the Old Testament Scriptures. Then they went forth and proclaimed this. They went forth and wrote it down. So as we look in the Old Testament and we want to know, well, how am I supposed to read the Old Testament? Well, how did the apostles read it? Well, the apostles read the Old Testament and they said, ah, we see Christ here. And so when we read the Old Testament, we see the proper way of reading them is through the lens of Christ. They saw Christ. So we don't know who the human author was, but we do know that this is the word of God. And so we know that this is God's word and that ultimately God authored Hebrews for us. In fact, we see that several times in the book where we see it saying that God himself is speaking to us. We see phrases like this, and he says, and he says, and the Holy Spirit says. So we're reading the very word of God. Now that we have the author figured out, Who was it written to? Who were the recipients? Well, there's one thing we know is they spoke Greek. And they had a deep understanding of the Old Testament. Particularly, they had a deep understanding of the sacrificial system. They had an understanding of the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. They understood the covenantal structure. They understood the promise of the New Covenant. In fact, the promise of the New Covenant recorded in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, is referenced twice in the book of Hebrews. So they had a a deep understanding of the, of the Old Testament. So most commentators would believe that This was Jewish Christians that had come to faith. Now, the first thing is we see in chapter 2, verse 3, what we already saw is that they came to faith under the apostles' preaching. So we're reading uh, this along with those that would have heard that gospel message from the apostles who came to faith through their preaching we also see that in chapter 13, they're not in, in Jerusalem. They're not in Palestine. We see this in verse 24 of chapter 13. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. So most say from this verse here, it means these were Jewish Christians living in the area of Rome. So they would have been part of the dispersion, meaning that that at some point, these faithful Jewish people had come to know who Christ is through the preaching of the gospel from, from the apostles. They have left the area of Palestine, and they have been spread through the world because of persecution. Now, that's going to factor into how we understand this text, is that they were a people that had experienced persecution. The temple was probably still standing at this time. We see in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 2 through 3, otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. He's writing... In the present tense, the, sacri- the sacrificial system is up and it's still running. You see that in other places, too, where it speaks of the temple. Now, why is that important? Well, the temple's destroyed by Rome in 70 AD. Jerusalem is completely devastated. And so what we're reading likely comes before 70 AD. Now that helps us because as we're going to see is that these are Christians that have faced persecution. You'll notice in chapter 10, verse 32, where it says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated in other words he's referencing a time that these christians who after they had come to faith have been persecuted and there was several points of persecution that took place for the early church, and the church has always faced persecution. But he's probably referring to the time when Christians were expelled and Jewish people were expelled from Rome. But we see something else coming. They've already experienced persecution for their faith. They have experienced hardship because of their faith, but they're not out of the water. You see, there's a threat of current persecution. Chapter 12, in verse 3, where it says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He's trying to encourage them. Remember, Christ who suffered. You've been persecuted, and it looks like persecution may be on the horizon for you. We see this again, where he says, Let us, therefore, in chapter 13, go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Let us suffer as Christ himself suffered. And so as we read this book, Let us just for a second recognize that context. This is to Christians that have been persecuted, that have faced physical violence, that have been displaced from their homes, and at the moment, things are okay, but it looks like they're going to be facing persecution once again. It looks like persecution is going to be coming their way. So we have to ask this question as we approach the book of Hebrews. What do you tell Christians that have faced persecution and are looking to face it again? What would your words to them be? How would you encourage a group of people, how would you encourage a a, a church that's faced persecution in the past and is looking at it again. What would you, if you, yourself, sitting here, had faced persecution, or you know that persecution's coming your way, what is it that you would want someone to tell you? Let me ask it like this. The number one persecuted country in the world... For Christians is Afghanistan. And number two is North Korea. What would it be that we would want to tell our brothers and sisters there in those foreign countries that face death, imprisonment, and torture for their faith? And if you knew that was facing you, what would be the words that would encourage you if you knew that persecution was around the corner waiting for you. Well, the thing that we see in the book of Hebrews most prominently as the primary theme is this, the superiority of Christ, our high priest and king. And that is the theme that is repeated over and over again throughout the whole book is that Christ is our high priest. And what does a high priest do? The high priest stands on behalf of his people that he is called to represent. And so the most comforting thing that we could hear is to know that we have an advocate. That we have a mediator. That we have one that stands on our behalf. But not only does he stand on our behalf, but that he is absolutely sovereign over all things. And the superiority of Christ comes with wonderful truths. And as we see them, we won't hit all of them this morning, but we will hit them as we go through this book. Let me just give you a few. How can we be encouraged knowing that Christ is our high priest is with this fact that if you are in Christ, your sins have been taken If you are in Christ, you have been declared not guilty because Christ is our high priest. So what do we need to be reminded of? Christ is our high priest and has taken our sins. In fact, chapter 1, verse 3 starts off with this saying, After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He has made a way. That you would be forgiven. Not only do we see that truth, but we see that this high priest is one that is merciful. We see this in chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Are you facing persecution? Are you facing people coming after you? Are you facing a government and world that hates you? So did your high priest. He faced it in a way that we could not even imagine And he was a faithful high priest. And he's merciful to you. And so if you have that fear, Christ has already conquered that fear. Because he's merciful. We see that he is a priest forever. We see in chapter 7, verse 3, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning nor of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, He continues a priest forever. And this is referring to Melchizedek, and that Christ comes in the priestly line of Melchizedek, but notice what it says, is Melchizedek resembled the Son of God, for He continues as a priest forever. Meaning this, is that there's never going to be a time that exists ever where Christ isn't high priest. And if you are in Christ, that is an eternal promise that you have that he mediates on your behalf. It doesn't matter what you face here. It doesn't matter how society changes. It doesn't matter what the church will face. We know that there's a merciful high priest that is eternal, that stands forever Backing his church and mediating on behalf of his church, and we also see in the emergence of this theme of Melchizedek is this: is that not only was Melchizedek a priest, he was also a king. And so we see the emergence of this theme come through the book of Hebrews. That's one that's comfort, and that is our high priest who is eternal who is merciful, who made a way of forgiveness of sins, is also sovereign. What does sovereignty mean? It means that one rules. And we see this here, so clearly pictured in chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have a, such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. In other words... He is seated as sovereign king. He is our sovereign king. We have kings and rulers throughout this world that make our lives difficult at times. Sometimes we're thankful when they do good. But we know this about all rulers is they're all fallible. We also know this about rulers, and this is where it becomes incom- a comfort. For the persecuted church is this, is that their power is derivative. There is no man on the face of the earth that has inherent power within himself. He only has that power which has been given to him from God above. Period. And there is one, though, that is not only a merciful high priest... That calls us to come to his throne of mercy. But he is also sovereign king. Imagine this is the one who upholds the entire universe, as chapter 1 tells us about Christ. Christ who upholds the entire universe. There's nothing in existence that Christ doesn't uphold. He's the king, and he invites you to come to his throne of grace because he's merciful. And He has shown His mercy to you because He has forgiven you of your sins against your, tra- your transgressions against Him. That's our King. And so for the church that would be facing persecution from wicked kings, from wicked rulers, they can look to the King that upholds the entire universe. And He holds His hand out with mercy and grace and says, come to me. Come to me you will receive grace and mercy from me. That's our sovereign king. That's our sovereign king. We see that he is the mediator of a new covenant that's not based upon our works, but is based upon the completed work of Christ. We see this in chapter 12. In verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, is that this covenant has been ensured by the work of Christ himself on behalf of his people. The covenant we have is not a covenant of works by which we have to work or try to earn our way and only fall short. It is a work of the sovereign king. We also see this, is that through his shed blood, we are set apart. We see in chapter 13, verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Why did things get put outside of the gate? This is a reference back to the the camp of, In Leviticus, how things were removed from the camp because they were defiled, they were unclean, and so they were tossed out. Christ became unclean that we may be made clean. That's what it means to be sanctified, to be set apart. This is our sovereign king. This is our sovereign ruler. This is our God. So you see... As we look at the book, the main theme is really the superiority of Christ as our high priest. I was As I was preparing to start this book, I, I saw this little chart that made the book so clear. It was made by a commentator named Dennis Johnson, and, and he divides Hebrews into these six areas. And, and I, I wish I had seen this chart a long time ago because it just made the whole book all of a sudden make sense it breaks the book down in this is that Christ is superior to angels to Moses to the priesthood to the old covenant to the sanctuary to the sacrifice to the promised land and to Sinai I read more than six there but some of them are grouped together now, why this is helpful is because the first argument, and this is how we understand these warning passages, and this is how this is a sermon also of warning. We've already seen the hope we have, but what about the warnings that were given? Well, Christ is superior to the angels. And the author references as his primary text, Psalm 8, but then he follows this about Christ and his superiority to angels. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, the first warning, which is this, and pay attention. He writes, Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We've already heard all of these wonderful things about Christ. So, look at what the warning is that comes with that. We we must pay attention to this, lest we fall away from it, lest we drift away. Don't neglect such a great salvation, don't take for granted what you have in Christ. He goes on to say how Christ is greater than Moses, the one to whom God spoke face to face as a friend, and how through Moses the law was was given. But we're told that Christ is superior and greater than even Moses, and it concludes with this warning that you need to hear. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You see what a warning that is. We see what a great, wonderful high priest we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let us not fail to reach the rest that Moses failed to reach. You see that he's greater than the Aaronic priesthood, and the primary text is from Psalm 110. And what's amazing is you think about the priesthood When you get to Leviticus chapter 4 where it gives instructions for the sacrifices all the way to about chapter 8 you see this combination of phrases. If anyone sins in this way and then a few verses later it will say then the priest will do this. If any of you sins in this way then the priest will do this. And then again if any of you sin, then the priest will do this. Over and over, that formula keeps coming up and up again. And Leviticus is pretty thorough in how it deals with sins of intention and those sins that are unintentional and specific sins and how we can have forgiveness in them. But the thing that as you're reading in the book of Leviticus is this is that, wait. I keep sinning. I have to keep going back to the priest and sacrifice this animal. And the priest does this bloody ceremony. But then I sin again. I have to go through it over again. And I have to do this every year because I keep sinning. And so then the priest has to keep sacrificing on my behalf. What do we see in Christ? He was once delivered for the forgiveness of sins. And we're given this warning in chapter 6 in considering that Christ has given us complete forgiveness of sins. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of instruction about washing and the laying on hands of the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible... Let that word sit in because it's the most unnerving word in this whole entire book. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Look what our great high priest has done, which no human high priest could do. Those who have tasted that, the text tells us it's impossible for them if they have fallen away to return to repentance. That's an unnerving text. But praise be to God that in Christ those who are in Christ persevere to the end. We see that Christ is superior to the covenant, the sanctuary, and the sacrifices. And this reference is Jeremiah 31. And it comes with this warning after saying how Christ is greater than these things in chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. That's what he says, this warning here. We have this in Christ, but yet, if we go on sinning, we actually never knew Christ. You see that Christ is better than the promised land, any references as a primary text is Habakkuk, and then in, we give this. We're given this warning for those that might fall away in chapter twelve, verse twelve. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. they were fearful of what was coming. And they were looking to revert back to Judaism in the light of oncoming persecution. Strengthen your weakness, he says. What a warning. He says that Christ is greater than Sinai. And the primary Old Testament text is from Exodus. And then we're given this warning. In chapter 12, verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Christ is greater than what took place. But there's another theme I want us to look at in light of that, of these warning passages. And it's through this word that you find come up over and over again in the book of Hebrews, which is the word perfect. Perfect, which means to bring to completion. Or something that is complete, something that is fulfilled, something that has been perfected. And this is where our confidence lies. In chapter 2, verse 10, after this warning, we're told this, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through Suffering. Now, one of the things that people argue in saying that one could lose their salvation is they look at those warning passages and they say, see, it's impossible for those to return to repentance to Christ. But what they miss is is actually what it tells us is that Christ, as the founder of their salvation, which is made perfect through the suffering that we face. You see in chapter 5, in verse 9, "...and being made perfect..." He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Let me ask you, if one could say, lose the salvation as if it was theirs to lose, how could it be called eternal? It cannot be taken from us because Christ, as it says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. It's as if to say, "Our eternal God was able to loosen his grip upon you." Nobody oh, is perfect. You see in chapter seven verse 28, "For the law appoints men in their weaknesses as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." Christ himself is eternal here, we see. And he is perfect in all of eternity. In chapter 10, verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being, and that is in that process of sanctified, that he himself, through his single offering, has perfected for all time those, that's people, If you are in Christ, our perfect eternal Savior has perfected you. Chapter 12, verse 23. We see this, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect. How could we ever neglect a perfect salvation? Now, here's the thing that we know about this, is that these were Christians that were facing persecution, had faced persecution. They were Jewish Christians, and they were thinking about going back to Judaism. They were looking at going back to their old way of life Maybe that's because they faced persecution and they thought, okay, maybe we're under the covenantal curses and we need to go back. I don't know why, but that was the threat. That was the warning. Don't go back because what you have is imperfect, but what Christ is, is perfect. And I want us to see this. Because they might have been saying, is it worth it to be persecuted for Christ? Well, here's what we know, is that the law itself cannot perfect you. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. What have we already seen is that Christ has perfected things, that Christ has made perfect. The law. Cannot make you perfect. Following the law will not make you perfect. You cannot add anything to which Christ has already accomplished. Praise God, because I know that trying to follow the law, I fall short. The law is good. It was given to us out of God's grace as a blessing to tell us what God expects. And the moral law flows out of the very character of God. But I can't do it. I've already broken it this morning. And so have you. It's not contributing to our sanctification. It makes us aware of the death we deserve. The law cannot make anything perfect. This is why we're about the gospel, by the way. Is the law good? Yes. Do we want our people to follow the law? Yes. Do we want this nation to be under the moral law of God? Yes. But it doesn't make anyone perfect. They will revert back to their sins. Only the gospel does that. It's only by the gospel that I say, oh, there's this law written on my heart, and now I actually have a desire to do it. And apart from the gospel, the law just reveals our death. We also see this The sacrifices and gifts to God and you could say our service to God, they actually don't contribute to our salvation either. Chapter 9 verse 9 says this, according to this arrangement's, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In other words, we could do all of the religious things we want to do, but if they're apart from Christ, it won't help that conscience you have. Why? Because they can't make you perfect. In Christ, we have his perfect righteousness. We see, as you get to Chapter 11, you see the heroes of the faith. And we see that the greatness of the heroes of faith lacks something given to the church. And we see this in chapter 11, verse 40. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Meaning, we were given the Messiah. They looked forward to the Messiah. And only in the Messiah are they perfect. Made perfect. What is that? John Owen, who wrote the, most, the, the largest commentary on the book of Hebrews, was written by the Puritan John Owen. It's a massive work. It's daunting to even have on the bookshelf. This is what he says. He says, These better things provided by God are, without question, the incarnation of the Son of God, the coming of the promised seed with his accomplishment of the work of redemption of the church and all the privileges of the church in light, grace, liberty, spiritual worship with boldness of access unto God that ensued thereon. In other words, the perfection that we have that they only could see a glimpse of is we have Christ. And we have seen him in his word. And so, the question for those that were thinking about going back to their old ways in light of persecution is well, why would you go back to that which can actually do nothing? Why would you rest in yourselves for salvation when you can't save yourself? Your conscience is always speaking against you. Your hope is always mixed with fear. Your faith is mixed with works that you know in your soul fall short. Your, your persecution that you face has no redemptive factor. But in Christ, you are complete. In Christ, you are lacking nothing And he reminds us that of of Abraham and the faith is that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You face troubles here, why go back? We're just walking through this earth, waiting for the new heavens and the new earth. This is temporary. It's the blink of an eye. It's gonna be gone. And we're going to rule with Christ and judge the nations with Christ. Why would we go back to that which is imperfect? Christ being made perfect as a merciful high priest. Why would we ever have weak knees? So why now? Why do we study the book of Hebrews now? Let me just ask this very simple question. Is it ever a bad time to be reminded of the glorious truths of Christ? Is that ever, like, unfashionable? Are we ever so to speak out of the threat of persecution? You see, the church is light, and the world loves darkness. And the church has always endured persecution, and the church will always endure persecution until Christ returns. But we are not a people without hope. We are not a people without confidence. We are not a people that shrink back or sink back into our old ways. We are not a people that turn away from Christ. We are not a people that lose faith. We are not a people that flirt with darkness. We are not a people that follow the world. We're not a people that rely upon works of man and upon ourselves. We are not a people that are imperfect, but rather we are in Christ. Christ. And Christ holds us fast. We are a people that endure. We are a people that persevere. We are a people that do not flinch. We are a people that do not have wobbly, shaky knees. We are a people of hope. We are a people of confidence. We are a people of victory. Because we have a merciful, victorious high priest that is King And so may these truths permeate our souls and bring us comfort from God himself. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our merciful high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that in him and in him alone we have salvation that is perfected by the shedding of his own blood on behalf of his people. May this bring your church comfort, Father. And we pray, that as we consider our merciful high priest, he invites us to the throne that we would receive grace and mercy from him. And so, Father, we come to you in need of mercy, in need of grace, and we know that you are rich in giving it, and that in Christ there are immeasurable riches. And so we thank you for your blessings upon your people. Encourage us, Father, by your word. Comfort us in times of fear. We rejoice that you have given us your word. You have given us your Son. That is our only hope. It's in Christ's name we pray. The Apostle Paul writes in First Corinthians chapter 11,